0: So Twitter's been as active as ever. What have we found? What's of interest? Johnny Wilkinson knows. Let's go and ask him. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. It's nice to have you with me again. And once again, sitting by my side is Dr. Johnny Wilkinson, who has been trawling the internet and specifically Twitter, finding out all things great and good. So without further ado, Johnny, away you go. Tell us what's been happening out there.
1: Hello, John. Nice to talk to you again. And it's been a good couple of weeks and uh, it's all a bit scorching here in uh, in the UK, Whoever, wherever else you're listening. It's... Um, sort of subtropical weather here it's all a bit strange so uh, without further ado uh, I'll get my sweaty self on and um, talk <laughs> you through some of, how nice talk you through some of the stuff which uh, I've been trawling like a lost fisherman over on Twitter now most of this stuff I have to confess uh, has actually come from just trawling around today for the last well it, sort of four or five hours worth I suppose uh, in amongst uh, Dealing with animals in the house and whatever else, so we'll start with uh, a little bit of a controversial one, um, and that's the woman trial. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, John. You, you probably, your guys have probably been talking about it. I've
0: heard of it. I couldn't yeah. tell you much more about it, but I've certainly heard of it. So yes. It's a
1: bit of an accolade, and it isn't. It's no Sandy Tosfig paper. This, but it is entitled "Woman," which is quite harsh. But it is all about the effect of early tranexamic acid administration on mortality. Um, from hysterectomy uh, Mm. specifically. So what essentially the authors were looking for, straightforward hypothesis, does the administration of this stuff uh, decrease mortality associated with bleeding post-hysterectomy? That's the key Mm. uh, because there were some fiddles that went on in this. And uh, I have to say, uh, on reading Twitter and looking at the reactions to the trial, uh, there's been some kind of heated argument over this. So anyway, what do they do? Uh, Fairly simple Uh, they administered tranexamic acid to uh, uh, patients uh, pretty much as quickly as they could after a hysterectomy when there was a any risk or purported risk of bleeding versus placebo, which was the same sort of uh, drug but a placebo version, obviously saline or whatever it might have been, administered over the same time period. So, 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 Johnny, just to be clear,
0: there they weren't actually necessarily bleeding; they were just believed to be at risk of bleeding.
1: Yeah, any patients who are deemed to be at risk of bleeding, and obviously, all uh, a lot of uh, hysterectomies are uh, the patients are at risk of uh, of bleeding, and particularly after uh, cesarean in sections, the postpartum hemorrhage risk was the main thing they were looking at, I guess. And, and this comes on the back of the CRASH-2 trial results, which showed that, you know, tranexamic acid, the magic drug we all give to everybody, particularly after major joint replacements, so forth and so on, spine cases, uh, and the CRASH-2 trial, it reduced all cause death at four weeks uh, in trauma patients. So um, fairly substantial headlines from CRASH-2, we were involved in that in Northampton. So they, they administered this stuff and then uh, awaited the results of the trial. Uh, and essentially, it, it may be beneficial in reducing risk of death due to postpartum hemorrhage. But the problem with the study was that there was some significant methodological limitations, methodological limitation, should I say, including they changed the power calculation uh, a few weeks into the trial, actually. They actually increased the number of patients by 5,000. So that was the first thing. Having already had the go-ahead for the trial, they did this sort of um, into the trial. And they also changed the hypothesis as well because they were looking at all-cause mortality reduction, but then they uh, honed it down to reduction in mortality from bleeding specifically. Uh, But that was after the trial had already commenced. So you, you could argue that there was a little bit of alteration going on, and that's never ideal in a large trial such as this. However... Uh, as the bottom line crew have nicely put, and you must look at their site because they've got the most gorgeous picture for the woman trial, which I've had a right laugh with Steve Matthew over, but we won't go into why. But you can see for yourself, they've done a very nice analysis of it. And essentially, it, you know, it's a good drug to give. It's got very, very few side effects, in fact, any at all, other than contraindicating people with color blindness, believe it or not, because. Uh, in overdose, tranexamic acid can cause colour blindness. Therefore, you wouldn't know if they're overdosed on it. And that's really... Oh really. That's, that's interesting. I wouldn't good, have known that. Good one for the pub, John. Again, want to decrease the crowd of people you have with you drinking. But there you go. Um, so, so don't, don't give me
0: tranexamic acid, acid, OK? You mustn't give it to me.
1: You mustn't give him tran. Are you colour blind? Yes, I am. There so go, definitely Well, are. I hope you're not wiring any plugs up in the house, but there, there we have it. No. Bang. No. So anyway, have, please do have a look at uh, at our blog on that and do have a look at the links to uh, the bottom line and, and the women trial. So there you go, more on tranexamic acid. It seems to be a great drug, and we do use it for everything, but it it may be implicated now uh, in decreasing um, mortality from bleeding and postpartum hemorrhage. So there you are. So I'll move on from the area of obstetrics, which is not my field of expertise, I have to say. Nope. On to, we all love him, Manu Malbrain, who we've met Uh and shared beers with and so forth. Uh, He is a very clever man and does a lot of work on IV fluids and IV fluid-related physiologies, as you know, John. Now, he's just, as you may have seen, uh, got a paper out in the British Journal of Anesthesia, published on the 16th of May. And it's the effect of isotonic versus hypotonic maintenance fluid therapy on urine output fluid balance and electrolyte homeostasis. Now this is clever because it's the sort of study I love because it's in healthy volunteers, always a good Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. And it was a crossover study and uh, there were two 48 hour study periods during which 12 fasting healthy adults were given one of the following. So isotonic fluid. Now that's not clearly what most people associate as being isotonic is Lucasade, which is ridiculous but in our medical terms isotonic fluid is that which is of similar constituents to the plasma so they were given isotonic sodium chloride Manu's favourite fluid 0.9% in glucose 5% supplemented with 40 millimoles per litre of potassium the other guys got pre-mixed Manu Malbrain special hypotonic fluid which was sodium chloride 0.32% so less than abnormal <laughs> in glucose, 5%, containing 26 millimoles per litre of potassium. And they were all given it at a rate of 25 mils per kilo of body weight for the day. So there you go. Two types of fluid, one labelled as isotonic, one labelled as hypotonic. Let's see what happened to them. So after 48 hours, um, less urine was actually voided with the isotonic fluids than with the hypotonic fluids, which is quite surprising because I wouldn't have thought that because the thing we all know, or usually the thing we thought, is that hypotonic fluids tend to cause a lot of hemodilution, shifts in uh, plasma constituents and so forth, and various electrolyte swings which cause a bit of a diuresis. But actually, no, because the significance was P less than 0.001, so it was extremely significant, this lower amount of urine produced with the isotonic fluids, which is not what you'd think. And the isotonic arm had significantly lower aldosterone levels And that was probably because the isotonic fluids actually had a a relative volume expansion effect, which wasn't expected. Sodium concentrations were higher in the isotonic arm, uh, but all measurements remained within the normal range on most of the other things. And interestingly, potassium concentrations didn't differ between the two solutions. But chloride concentrations, have a guess, were higher with the abnormal 0.9% saline. Than with the isotonic one, and so Mm -hmm. some of those guys uh, they got a notable uh, hyperchloremia. So no hypokalemia or hyponatremia as a result of hypotonic solutions in the volumes they gave to these healthy volunteers. So I think that's quite interesting, really, yeah, um, because it it goes against the mantra of what you'd expect. I mean, I've been going around plugging to people, particularly the junior staff, that uh, isotonic uh, fluids fluids the way forward. Hypotonic fluid should be avoided unless there are specific circumstances. And let's all be careful with it because maintenance fluid can be mistaken for uh, for um, fluid boluses, etc., and things can go awry with patients. But the editors have commented that daily administration of several litres of commonly used IV crystalloid fluids uh, will lead to electrolyte and salt overload in surgical patients. So there's your first thing. Uh, and the study found that an isotonic crystalloid fluid was associated with less urine output when compared with hypotonic. So in a nutshell, the lesson is here that more care should be used on prescribing these things uh, perioperatively, because we all give Hartmann's to patients. Some of us still give normal saline to patients. But the fact is that these inverted commas, isotonic fluids actually have quite a profound effect on volume, in, in particularly in the quantities that patients sometimes get when they're nil by mouth for days and days. So so there you go. That's a great one from Manu. And you must have a read of the paper. There's a link on which will go onto our site via yours, etc. later. And I think,
0: Johnny, just to talk about that, <clears throat> I think one of the problems with fluid uh, management is not necessarily that there is obviously an element of which fluid do you use and are we using the right fluids? Yeah. But in my experience, one of the bigger problems is just using either too much or too little and never really Uh, knowing.
1: I think, Uh, I think, sorry, there's a dog barking in the background there. That's, apologies. That's Um, fine. Never
0: really knowing exactly how much we're giving and why. It's almost a guessometer sometimes, isn't it?
1: I think you're right. Uh, And I think there is an inherent fear over IV fluids. And, uh, you know... These are things we give every day. We provide oxygen to patients. We provide IV fluids as a part of routine. But then when it comes to the deeper analysis questions, why we're doing what we're doing, people tend to go into a little bit of a panic. And it isn't surprising as to why, because you go to all these meetings on fluids, everyone comes away confused. So uh, I think Manu is certainly, uh, as he would like to so say, breaking the glass ceiling uh, on, on lots of these myths and some very interesting stuff coming out of, of a simple volunteer study there. So... So, Mm. I thought you'd like that one. The next thing I want to talk about is the good old angiotensin 2 for the treatment of vasodilatory shock. Now, I don't know if your guys took part in the uh, La Jolla sponsored study, which was known as Athos 3. No, they did not. Okay, well, we did it at Northampton, uh, and it was a phase three drug trial. And um, we entered into this with a little bit of sort of, uh, you know, steel armor on because we all know what. We all know the association with drug trials and what happened eight years ago that was a bit of a disaster, etc. However, we took part in this randomized three in the end, I think. um, And it was simple. uh, What we were looking at was uh, two arms. uh, So patients who had um, vasodilatory shock and were vasopressor naive, i.e., those who weren't really responding to a certain uh, mic per kilo per minute. quantity of noradrenaline or vasopressin uh, we were allowed to randomize these patients into the trial so they either received the study drug which was an angiotensin II analog or they got placebo uh, it was well blinded but obviously uh, clinicians were aware the trial was going on etc etc so you know there's a lot of arguments about methodology etc which I won't go into however uh, there were encouraging primary outcome results. And this has come out in the New England Journal of Medicine. You can have a look, and there's a link again, uh, which we'll uh, show you later on the site. And if, you, if you're if listening to this cast, it's on there. Uh, and the time to obtain target mean arterial pressure was shortened with the angiotensin II analogue drug. So 69.9% achieved it versus 23.4% in the placebo arm. And that was a very significant result, P less than 0001 So that's encouraging because it could be that this drug may appear on our shelves in 2018 and it may be a choice because, you know, you're a bit limited in your armory. There's adrenaline, there's noradrenaline, then there's vasopressin, then you're stuck. But this side of uh, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway has not really been looked at from a synthetic angle before, and this could be the one. Hopefully, however, and there is always, as you know, medical trials, however, there was no significant difference in mortality, unfortunately. Um, so death by day 28 occurred in 46% in the angiotensin 2 group versus 54 in the placebo. So yes, there's a difference in percent, but the p-value is only 0.12. So it wasn't powered to detect a mortality benefit. So I guess we need larger RCT power to do just that. Mm. Um, but again, like I said, it could be an encouraging thing for us and it may work and it may benefit our patients because let's face it, we've been trying... Endlessly to do this um, to no avail, really. So that's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what the cost's going to be because that's the other thing. Um, well, I was
0: good. you just took the words out of my mouth there because um, I mean, we for example have just started using dexmedetomidine, and that's always Likewise. been a, always been a cost restrictive item that we've just managed to get through now. Um, and you've got to try and justify those costs with shortened ICU length of stay, basically, haven't you? You know that's that's what
1: you're relying on. You so, do, and um, it, it is always a bit of a nightmare, isn't it, when you go into things like this? And you've got you've read a lot of research, you've read a trial which says drug A is of benefit, et cetera, And then to get get it actually onto the formulary in the trust is not simple, and has big cost implications, of course, as you say. So. Yeah. We shall see, but I expect I, I suspect this will be a very expensive drug Ala APC, and we all know what happened with that one, so let's hope it doesn't happen uh, with uh, the um, angiotensin-2 analogue drug that could come out for us. Mm. So that's that one. Shifting quickly on, um, we all know about care bundles in sepsis. Everyone's kind of sick of hearing about them, I suppose, but we all know they're important. But there's a paper in the NEJM again, which um, highlights the importance of rapid diagnosis on low index of suspicion when it comes to sepsis. And this is uh, an interesting case series from 1,865 hospitals in the US. And it's examining the use of three-hour care bundles in sepsis. Again, link on the site. But interestingly, in this, as you'd expect... Um, no SH1T, Sherlock, excuse the phrase. Completion of most of it within three hours leads to decreased mortality. There you are. However, yeah. hooray, but interestingly, delays in the initial bolus of IV fluids didn't have any sort of link with um, risk-adjusted in-hospital mortality. So delaying antibiotics beyond three hours does. Uh, delaying uh, things like a uh, um, institution of lines, etc., and so forth – probably does but if you were just a bit late in giving your initial IV fluid bolus that didn't seem to have much of an effect so that's interesting and again it kind of goes against the rose principle you know with the resuscitation organ support stabilization and uh, evacuation of fluids that uh,
0: and, and the the what the the primary endpoint was mortality again in
1: this point, primary so. endpoint was uh, risk adjusted in hospital mortality yeah so right. they found that the um the delay of IV fluids for the initial resuscitation wasn't linked. OK, let's uh, not
0: say that too loudly, though, because...
1: No, no, we're not, I'm not promoting for any minute that you should just sit there and not give any IV fluids to resuscitate patients. However, these were interesting results from the case series they uh, that they looked at and do have a dig into that a bit later on. And,
0: and I think several studies in the past have shown that the antibiotics are really, really crucial, aren't they, to get in as early as you possibly can.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They are. And uh, interestingly, I reviewed a paper for the, um, um, the European Journal of Emergency Medicine a couple of weeks ago, which may or may not be published. I don't know yet. And they were looking at um, what actually happens on the first onset of symptoms to hospital admission, the time delay between getting a sniffle or a cough to actually coming in with your diagnosis of systemic inflammatory response sepsis, they were looking at whether that has a bearing on mortality. And I won't tell you what the results are yet, but uh, uh, hopefully that may be published, but it was an interesting case series done in the Netherlands actually. um, And it's not been looked at before. So there was a little bit of a link. So um, hopefully we'll be able to tell you a bit more about that at some stage. Okay. Another interesting one. Um, Some editorials out, which, uh, which are worth a look. Um, there is one in uh, – uh, now, don't get too excited about the title of the journal here – Catheterization and Cardiovascular Interventions Journal. Woo-hoo. Anyway, I don't know why I ended up looking at this. No, I'll tell you why I ended up looking at this, because uh, good old Rob McSweeney put uh, a link to this paper on um, critical care reviews. So I had a dig and thought, oh, good, this is a bit uh, chunky and a bit difficult to uh, to chew. However – It's all about, uh, essentially, it's invasive hemodynamic monitoring. For tricky cases, and this is all cath lab stuff. So I thought, well, do I need to read this anymore? Because I'm not an interventional cardiologist. But if you look through it, it actually gives some very nice definitions of all of the valuables and variables that we valuables, the variables that we look at on ICU, and it reminds you of some of the quite intricate, detailed physiology things like vascular ventricular coupling, preload, afterload, Starling's law, etc. So it is worth a little look if you just look at the tables alone that's fine, but it will make you look like a bit of a geek on the ward round as you're able to discuss at quite some length the intricacies of various um, parameters you're looking at on the monitor. But I thought that was just interesting for a quick flick through, really. Um, and then moving on again, there's a lot of stuff of the moment about acute kidney injury, loads of it, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, and a very interesting series has come out. Again, I found this through Rob, um, all about whether we should involve nephrologists on the unit. Now, I don't know what you do at your centre, we tend to get nephrologists uh, involved sort of fairly late on into the mm. patient's stay when they're on the filter they've been on for days and we start panicking a bit about uh, Getting the long-term problem. Yeah, exactly, uh, weaning them off. So we've got a pro-nephrologist, a con-nephrologist, and then someone sitting on the fence. So there's three nice little reviews, and they are brief, but I thought they were very nicely done, mm. um, and they're in intensive care medicine. And essentially, the argument for having a nephrologist there really is all about your your prolonged um, acute kidney injury that waxes and wanes and is going to develop and end up in chronic kidney disease needing dialysis. I think that is definitely an area where we need nephrology input. What they're arguing for on the, we don't need um nephrologists on the on on the unit and their opinion really is in the starting of cvvh or filtration cvvhdf etc uh they're dealing with the acute phase stuff they're dealing with the volume overloads whatever it is so the acute stuff we don't need their input necessarily but then the sitting on the fence one is kind of saying well why don't we just involve them early on because we can learn from them they can learn from us and actually it would be a multidisciplinary approach but of course as you know you can't just have a nephrologist on the ward round and they are few and far between mm. in the current climate we have in the UK certainly so you, it's a bit of a, a luxury we don't have unfortunately so within uh, that you can have a scroll through I've actually put the stages of CKD down because everyone says oh this patient's got CKD 2, 3, four. but do you actually remember what those are it's all about GFR but I've done that for you also, the rifle and akin criteria are down there as well. Just kind of a little reminder. And if you really want to, if you're really getting excited over this, <laughs> you can look at the Kidago document on management of acute kidney injury. So I'll leave that for your bedtime reading, John, because um, it's a long one.
0: Excellent. Well, funnily enough, I've been asked to do a brief three-hour refresher for the outreach nurses about um, acute kidney injury. So maybe that's something I can have a look at and just Oh well, there
1: you go. And we've also myself. <laughs> We did a blog a week ago on this. Actually, my clinical fellow produced quite a nice uh, little document because I said to him, "Look, you know, can you write something for us about CVVH, CVVHDF? What the hell are they all? Why? When do we start them? What's the benefit, so forth?" So that might might be worth a little uh, a little look, so you can. Uh, That's on your up. site now, is it? It is. It's on. Uh, I think it was last week's blog. You can find it on criticalcarenorthampton.com. Okay, I'll go and have a look for that then. Have a butchers, yeah. Excellent. Um do tell me when we need to break for sponsors by the way.
0: Uh we don't need to do that this week. Uh Johnny, um my sponsor uh, my commitment with my sponsors finished currently so you ah, There you go. On. I'll
1: just plug Yankee candles then. Yankee candles. They <laughs> smell amazing and burn for hours. There you are. there's actually one on the desk here. That's what I'm saying. So we can we can skip on through then, can't we? We can. Right. So more about acute kidney injury because uh, there is a lot on on Twitter about it at the moment. Um, a little review um, by Billings and Shaw, which is in Nephron a Clinical Practice Journal. I mean, I do trawl in some funny things, I have to admit, but uh, this was a nice one because it's going on about acute kidney injury and how to identify it very early. We're all obsessed with biomarkers to identify the risk of acute kidney injury. Do we do it early? How can we find it, etc. But this article is kind of highlighting we're getting a bit obsessed with that, and actually. There is yet, as yet, nothing out there, which really gives us the right direction to, to run in or walk in or whatever you want to say. So what they're saying is we need to probably focus on the end outcome, and that should not just be mortality, but actually the development of end-stage kidney disease. So they're saying, why don't we focus on that? And what they've uh, developed is a, it's a composite outcome of death, new dialysis, and worsened renal failure func- uh, renal function. Um which is defined as 25% or greater decline in EGFR. And what they've called it is the the MAKE, M-A-K-E, outcome. So that's Major Adverse Kidney Event Outcome. So Mm -hmm. all of those things I've just mentioned Mm -hmm. at 30 days, 60 days, and 90 days after acute kidney injury diagnosis. So therefore, you've got MAKE 30, MAKE 60, and MAKE 90. And actually, that gives you some kind of idea as to whether they're going to develop chronic kidney disease or not. So I thought that was a nice paper because at the end of the day, Acute kidney disease is a pretty devastating thing. Allegedly, 50% of ICU patients develop it, usually due to an infective cause. But it's something that we jump on, we treat. But then when they get off the unit, you kind of forget about what happens, which again, gives some relevance to what I've just talked about with getting nephrologists involved. So there you go, the make ninety. Is, is a pretty good one to be to be considering in your, your patients with acute kidney injury okay. uh, rather than just can you get them off the filter or not. You should think about all those things. Sure. Uh, clinical stuff. Um, now, I've entitled this one Bloody Thinners. Um, ha-ha. But this is all about perioperative management of patients on direct oral anticoagulants. So you go to theatre, you pop an epidural in someone, they've stopped their drug they were on to thin the blood down. You think, oh, God. Had they stopped it for long enough? Well, it's a bit late by the time you've put the needle into the back. However, you should have some kind of idea as to what these direct oral anticoagulants do, how long they last, uh, and how they work, etc. So this article in um, Thrombosis Journal, another cracker, uh, highlights it very nicely. And There's a lovely table in there which tells you exactly how all the drugs work, what factors they work on, and also further down, there is a very complex but detailed table about how long you should stop them for, uh, whether you need bridging therapy, whether they're high risk or not. And then, interestingly, uh, when you can restart them after you've done an interventional procedure to the patient. So that's got relevance to us on ICU. It's got relevance to people who are providing neuraxial uh, anesthesia to people. uh, And the list goes on, I guess, because uh, you don't want to necessarily be plowing a large bore line into one of these guys without the knowledge of how these things work. So Mm. I've given you a little reminder on there. Um, so you should have a little look through that. I mean, you don't need to read it in too much depth, but have do have a look at the tables. It's a very well written article. Okay. Getting to the end now, actually. Um out with the old and in with the new. So we all do blood cultures on the unit. Um, everyone's obsessed with it. Temperature spike, let's do three sets of blood cultures. Oh, they've spiked again two days later, more blood cultures. But actually, what yield are you getting out of those blood cultures? Now we did um quite a bit of research into this uh, at our place, and there was such an insignificant yield of blood cultures. I mean, I I can't remember the exact figures. I tried to find them out from a colleague today. There is a fairly insignificant percentage come back positive of the hundreds we send, and I'm saying hundreds often per month. And presumably,
0: Uh, I would imagine your blood culture's got a reasonably significant cost as well, hasn't it?
1: Well, it does, it it does, uh, because they sit in trays in the lab, and then they will only then culture um onto dishes uh those bottles that have a certain chemical reaction so this is the first stage then they'll plate them out and then you get the growth so loads of those are not um yielding anything so what they're saying here is why don't we do real-time pcr for early microbiological diagnosis so they're saying uh you see the negatives of blood cultures are that they've got 70 percent specificity and the sensitivity is only 10 percent in suspected bacteremia 30% in febrile neutropenia and 35% in even severe sepsis. So we're actually sending these things off with the hope that we're going to grow something so that we can tailor the antibiotic therapy uh, to be more specific to the condition causing the problem in the first place. But if you do a PCR, uh, but the problem with the PCR is you've got to have something in mind and say, I want a, I don't know, a PCP PCR, please or something specific, you can't just say on a PCR on the blood because it's too expensive, test anything. But if you've got a vague idea, it will tell you it within hours. Mm. So they're saying if you've got uh, a vague idea, you should combine uh, a PCR with your normal blood cultures and you'll get a better yield. And therefore, a la pathway for sepsis, you can... Um, you can tell the antibiotic therapy uh, to be much more relevant to that patient. But again, you know, it's expensive, isn't it? Not everywhere does it. But I have included a nice little video about what PCR is. So have a uh, do have a look at that and remind yourself of all that genetics you forgot uh, while you're at med school flicking rubbers at people from the back or whatever you're doing in lectures. <laughs> not that I did that, obviously. No, of course not. Of course not, because I'm a saint, uh, saint's fan and saint as well. Now, moving on, stats, we hate them, uh, but they're in every paper. Um, and I do love this uh, little blog that's come out about what a receiver operating curve is. Now, um, I, I've never really understood these, if, I, if I'm honest, um, in, in much depth, but there is a very nice little blog on what a receiver operating curve is. Um, and it's um, you can click on the link on that. And it's done by Who Candlish and Tia. Uh Now, I forget what journal it was in. I think it may just be a blog, actually. But what it's telling us is, it's reminding us of what sensitivity and specificity are all about. So, remember, sensitivity of a test is the proportion of true positives that it actually identifies. So, I guess that's like a pregnancy test. If you're pregnant and it says you're pregnant, then that's good sensitivity. Specificity is the proportion of true negatives that are correctly identified. So, again, you're not and it says you're not. What the ROC does, the receiver operating curve, is it combines those two into a curve, and the area under it will give you an idea of the accuracy of a test. Done. And I don't think it needs to be any more complicated than that. But I did giggle uh, at Steve Mathieu and the bottom line crew's uh, lovely infographics. Whoever does their graphics is is pretty phenomenal. But it's all about type one and type two errors. Have you seen this on Twitter? The the the
0: one I keep the seeing
1: on type
0: well the one I keep seeing about the type one and type two errors is the doctor looking at the gentleman and saying a type one error. So he's examining the bloke and he's saying you're pregnant. Well, that's yeah, a type that's one it. error. And then yeah. he's examining a very obviously pregnant lady and saying you're not pregnant, and that's a type two error.
1: Absolutely. I think they've done. That. I think that's. It's so well done, uh, and hats off to them. Yeah, um, <clears throat> they've also used the cry wolf phenomenon, et cetera. Right, but yeah, the, it, it really cleared things up for me. I mean, it's it's funny, isn't it? Silly little infographics like this just go miles and miles because you remember them, and, and they just, just, just
0: remind is- me as well. Am I right in saying that the area under the curve, if the value is, um, if the value is one, then yeah. basically every time you give somebody something, it works every time. But if the value is something like 0.5, then you might as well. Toss a coin for
1: exactly because it's fifty-fifty randomness. Yeah, yeah. So okay. the sensitivity and specificities are all over the place in that in that example of the area under the ROC curve. So, so if you
0: if you want so it to, if you want it to be positive, you want a, a, cl- a value closer to one, don't you? As a cl- yeah, okay, that's
1: exactly. It. You fit the nail on the head. Thanks yeah. for that. Okay. Uh, and towards the bottom now, we're getting to other blogs. Now there's a lovely blog on anaphylaxis myths and mysteries done by I think it was the M Docs actually, um, and it's just nice because it's really brief to the and to the point, and what it does say is there are lots of myths in anaphylaxis, like particularly the giving of corticosteroids. I mean, they're not going to work immediately, but people slam them into the patients thinking, great, yeah, we're giving this list of stuff. The key to anaphylaxis in my eyes, and as pointed out here, is that the whole problem is that the mast cells in the body are degranulating out of control, and they are spraying histamine throughout the body, and you get a vasodilatory effects, and then the obvious signs and symptoms of anaphylaxis shan't always a feeling of doom and hypotension. Sometimes it's abdominal pain and you just don't feel right, etc. But the whole point of adrenaline um, in anaphylaxis is not to raise blood pressure um, and an increased force of contraction of the heart, etc. It's nothing to do with that. All the adrenaline does is it, it stabilizes mast cell membranes and stops them degranulating anymore. Did you know that? No. There you go. Aren't I just the best pub quiz man you've ever met? It's just so- awesome. Yeah, absolutely awesome. So that's what adrenaline's for. So they, they sort of go into this a bit. We blogged about it a while ago. And also they mentioned you, you should actually consider glucagon for anaphylactic reactions in those on beta blockers. And you don't always think about that one, although it is used as a kind of inverted commas antidote for overdose of beta blockers. But do have a look um, because they, they go into things very nicely and um, it sort of clears things up in your mind, including the drug doses that we all should know, but they're all down there as well. And then um, the Rebel M crew do a very nice little article on aspirin overdose. Um, and what they're saying here is that, uh, it, I mean, it is a fairly nasty drug and it, we all check for salicylate paracetamol levels in patients who've overdosed. Um, but what they're pointing out is that in overdose, it causes such a profound metabolic acidosis. Your body normally copes because you start to hyperventilate. You blow out that volatile acid and you try and re-equilibrate your pH that way. Some of the patients due to decreased cerebration, decreased GCS, actually need intubating. But the point you do that, you render them uh, physiologically trespassed, unable to have that compensatory mechanism anymore. You can't hyperventilate these guys enough on, on ICU. You'd have to have a vent rate of 40, 50 to blow off enough CO2 to cause an effect on pH. Mm. So they're there saying, once you've tubed them, you need immediate dialysis, and that's it. So I thought it was a nice article. Because there was a small study done, it was a retrospective study looked at 56 cases, and they found that 41 of the 56 survived, 73.2 percent of the ones who had early dialysis having been intubated. The fatal cases didn't get dialysis. So think about spinning these guys, and again, our blog on CVVH and, and, and kidney dialysis talks about the drugs that are suitably removed by hemodialysis, um, because you know there, are, there is quite a list of those that aren't, but aspirin's one. Mm-hmm. so <clears throat> oh, excuse me <clears throat> list of infographs at the end and this is the end now i do love infographs and we have got uh, a section on the site with loads of them on that i've sort of found uh, over over the years really uh there's a lovely one about uh do you have an adult icu pre-intubation checklist when you're about to uh put the blue cigar down yes we do you do. Well, the Alfred ICU have got a very nice one. I've kind of nicked it and stuck it on the website. We have one as well. It's not quite like this, but I do like theirs. It's very simplistic, very much who checklist sort of thing. Um For everyone else who doesn't use that World Health Organization checklist, everyone's blue in the face with it in the UK. Uh, they've also got an unanticipated difficult intubation plan section and then predictors of difficult airways, which they have a nice mnemonic as bones, rods, and the B is bearded, O is obese, N is no teeth, Uh e is elderly, S is sleep apnea or snoring, and then the the rods is restricted mouth opening, obstruction, distorted airway, stiff lungs or C spine. So I thought that was quite nice. I've not mm. seen that one before. Okay. Then there's a nice little infographic uh, about uh, the approach to the edematous intubated airway. Um, so that's doing your leak test. So you know you've got your patient who may have come in with um superglottic uh, problems or whatever it is when do you get that tube out when's it safe to extubate they've got a very nice flow diagram here which kind of helps you out a bit um and it gives you sort of uh, effectively it, it's explaining what a leak test is and how to perform it and then what to do so i thought that was lovely excellent and swiftly finally moving on i've got a lovely section on pocus because i'm obsessed with that good a la adrian wong um and there's lots of nice little images you can look at from some of the guys who've popped things up on Twitter. It's more from Sam Garley as usual. He he seems to put loads on. I, I don't know how the hell he gets all these images, but they're they're very good wherever he gets them from. Um and where is he putting I- these? He's putting them on Twitter, so he's um, at em underscore resus. He's uh, he's well worth following because he puts some beautiful images on, lots of video laryngoscopy stuff as well. You can look at, but he's got some nice uh, a quad image of uh, different types of shock and the observation on various views of the heart. So he's got hypovolemic shock, what it looks like, what a massive P looks like, what cardiogenic shock looks like, and what a tamponade looks like. So they're nice, that's useful. Various of the funky ones, and finally I'll end because. The Smack guys, I've forgotten who it is, and I do apologize if any of them are listening, but I've retweeted this. They put a beautiful playlist on, which has 85 videos, and I've embedded this. Click on the top left arrow. You can see them all, but it literally is the scanning world and how to do most scans. So whoever's put that together, hats off Uh, as one of the smack guys and I have as I say retweeted it so do have a look on my feed and you'll see it and hats off to them but it's a lovely one it would probably take you about a week to view them all but they're nice to dip into Mm. as a good little case study and really that's it uh, uh, John I think um, that that literally is sort of a five-hour trawl I mean there's so much out there and again I've got to plug again the beauty of social media and medicine uh, and a final uh, announcement is we, we have two fellowship posts starting in August, which we're going to be interviewing for soon. So um, it might be nice to even get uh, one of our fellows involved in this podcast at some stage in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm all for that, most definitely. I mean, it's really interesting that... Um, I was talking to my wife about this early because, um, I'm, I'm toying with the idea of going down a, a PhD route myself. And, um, the guy who, um, is helping me to, um, put something together said today, why don't you send out a quick survey on early mobilization in, uh, critical care and the nurse's views of it? So I put a quick survey monkey, um, out there, it's only ten questions because that's all you can do for free. Yeah. I used my email list because from my website, I've gradually built up an email list of nearly six hundred people now. Um, I use the followers on my on Twitter and Facebook as well. And bearing in mind, I only put this survey out what uh, four hours ago. I've had sixty responses so far. Joke? Uh, no, and long, it? it's it's phenomenal, isn't it? You know, I would have been happy with ten, um, and I'm mm-hmm. hoping actually that I can break the ceiling because um, with the free survey you're only allowed 100 responses so i'm hoping that i might even make it to the 100 if i tweet it out and facebook it again a bit more often but to me that's the power of this kind of medium um that it's, it's it is, like, absolutely it's like a, it's a sort know, of
1: binary, binary fission, isn't it, it just, yeah just takes
0: you, you know if if I do go down the research route I've already got not just a national audience but I've now got an international audience people who um, through either Twitter or Facebook or, or through this podcast know of me know of the things that I do and I can communicate with them and it's just I have a resource at my fingertips already and that's just through three years of being fairly consistent so I couldn't encourage enough guys in medical profession who want to um, who want to network effectively to realise that the internet, the podcasting world, the social media world is just, it it's not a novelty. It's not a gimmick. It's something that people should start taking really, really seriously if that's what they want to do.
1: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I think it was interesting at SMAC Dublin to see the major journal editor sitting on a couch. Uh, and many of them, in fact, nearly, nearly all, struggling to argue against social media and medicine, because it is just so interesting and so easy to get access to things which could change your life and the patients more importantly. Yeah, so, absolutely.
0: Um, and I've always said from day one, you know, when I started this podcast three years ago and I've been talking to myself for an awful lot. Now I've got you, I've got Gav, I've got Sean, I've had lots of other guests. Um, I've got three more episodes lined up from international guests who all want to come and talk to me. Um You know, I've always said that this is something that will grow and grow and grow and grow. And And, and, and I think that's proving to be, you know, there's all the intensive care societies now uh, are getting themselves a podcast podcast. the Society of Critical Care Medicine leads the way probably with one of the best podcasts mm. out there from a, a society point of view um, but they're all doing it and they're all interested in it and they've all got valuable information to disseminate which can be listened to and this is what I always say it can be listened to at your leisure it can be listened to repeatedly if that's what you want to do and you can take away the best bits from it and if you want to cut me off halfway because I'm talking rubbish you can do that you can walk away and go and listen to somebody else so it's yeah, such, it's such and all of That is in your pocket. It is. You know, so
1: it, 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 you know, I can't emphasize the value of this enough. And, you know, I've really only just got into this uh, over the last probably two years solidly, I suppose. But without it now, unfortunately you'll be trying to wade through a truckload of journals that you end up putting in the recycling bin sometimes. I mean, let's face it, you don't have time. You just don't have the time. So there we go. One final thing, John, may I mention Hocus Pocus? Yes. Have you heard of that? No. Right. Well, Hocus Pocus is a site that has been very cleverly set up. All of you guys who are Pocus fans and you have your scans and images, you can now free, for free, upload anonymized images to the site and it creates a log for you it will store them on a virtual cloud so they're there and if you're going through your FICE um, and CUSIC accreditation your mentors can just get access to them and and there you have it so I think it's been a very clever initiative Uh, and it was set up by um, three guys one of which uh, is a is a good friend of mine, and I never realised he was part of it till he announced it the other night. And I said, "Crikey, you're all over all over social media," and I think it's a great thing you've done. So there you go, hocus pocus. Do right. have a look, get logged on, and store your images on it.
0: That's fabulous. So that's kind of crowdsourcing um, various images, isn't it, and making them available. Presumably, we can look at anybody's images on there as well, or do you have I to? I think be given- we
1: can because they're anonymised. I think I think that they've done it very cleverly and it's very tight. I think you 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 agree to share images. They have to be anonymized, so there's confidentiality through and through. But I think I'm not entirely sure about whether it's going to form a library as such, more of a storage medium for people. But there is also a library available which has been started up with uh, various ultrasound images on. I forget the name of the site now, but um, they're, they're starting to build up a big library as well, so that'll be good to look at. Okay, fabulous. And there we have it.
0: Right, um, that's 45 minutes, so that's probably more than enough for people to listen to. I'm sure that they are ended their journeys now. They've either finished their run, they've got to work, or they've fallen asleep in bed. I do actually, I'm going to mention yeah. got one of the doctors at my place that I work at often says he falls asleep to my voice. So, uh, morally, if you're listening to this, go to sleep, for goodness sake. Yeah, I
1: do. Yeah. Yes, and uh, you've got a hypnotic voice, John, that's what it is, you yeah, see. Be, or just a boring one, one of the yeah. two. <laughs> No.
0: So, okay, so we'll say good night, um, and we're going to do this again. Hopefully, in a couple of weeks, uh, is that the plan? I think, isn't That's it? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Every every fortnight is the aim. So um, we'll look forward to part three. And uh, so it's good night from me, and it's good night from him.
0: You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. Tweet us at ccpractitioner. Find us at facebook.com slash practitioner or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes.